You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. Eight minutes and 48 seconds, the length of time police officer Derek Chauvin was filmed kneeling on the neck of African-American man George Floyd, causing his death and prompting worldwide protests. Eight minutes and 48 seconds was the period of silence observed at a memorial service for Mr Floyd in Minneapolis yesterday, at which mourners were told his death would not be in vain. Four police officers have now been charged in connection with the killing. Former US President Barack Obama has called for a nationwide review of the use of force by police and for progress on police reform. Before we came on air, I spoke to former New York police officer Eugene O'Donnell, now Professor of Police Studies at John Jay College in Chicago. Would he, I asked him, support Barack Obama's call? A lot of time went by between the time this erupted the last time, which is about five years ago, uh, and there's really been no progress. And the president tried to do the best thing they could there, but that report really didn't help because one of the major questions in the country is where the police going to come from. Uh, police departments all over the country are incredibly short-handed, uh, and you can't get recruits. Uh, and even if you lower standards, you still can't get recruits. And we're at a point now where the people who want to be in urban American policing might very well not be the people you'd want to hire. But in those situations where police are called to a scene, and perhaps there's some requirement for restraint or dealing with a, a, potentially, a potential disturbance, um, are, they, are they adequately equipped and prepared and trained to deal wa- with that in a way that we don't end up with the sort of situation we saw uh, in relation to George Floyd and this uh, terrible killing? Well, what, where we are now at this uh, at this juncture, after this weekend especially, um, uh, the formulation now is that uh, in the big cities is that nothing is worse than uh, a bad outcome with the police. Uh, nothing is more monumental or problematic than a graphic video of the police using force on somebody, and that's a model that cannot be sustained in our country for sure. And uh, so we're, we're really at a crossroads here. We're going to have to reckon with. And there's actually people talking on both sides practically about what you do beyond the police because um, you can't define American policing, 350 million people. Just in New York alone, the 5 million calls a year to the NYPD, guns everywhere, violence everywhere. Uh, not everywhere, but concentrated poverty, mm-hmm. and then you have these uh, the knockout effects of that, um, and 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 make that the standard. So this you, you so you essentially have a stand down of the police in the places where they're most needed. And in cities like Baltimore, you basically don't have a police force at this point. The, the issue here, as we, we can clearly see, is it's who has been subjected to this, this excessive force. It's African Americans, it's black Americans, many times more likely than their white counterparts to be, uh, to be uh, the subject of uh, police violence and, and even killings. Well, a lot of it actually collapses, uh, that theory, when you actually look at the data, but it's never been a data-driven conversation. And it's if you look at the proportionality of crime, which is incredibly disproportionate, the police in America would be patrolling, in urban America, would be patrolling some of the most dangerous uh, streets in the world. Um, urban violence would be incredibly disproportionate. A city like Chicago, which this weekend, just this weekend, unrelated to the looting, had 85 shootings, 24 fatalities. Uh, you'd have in this, in this city, probably a third of the population is white. You'd have no white victims at all. There'd be, there'd be no, in 10 years, you'd have no white victims. We've had in Chicago in 25 years, 20,000 African-American 
kids killed, and it's almost always cross-racial. And so if you're doing data-driven policing, all of your resources are going to be in the poorest places. And, um, and, and, and that, just, by, just on the face of it, is, is, uh, you know, is an invitation for disproportionality. I'm by no means suggesting that there's not issues here. There's, there's a lot of complicated issues. But you, you may remember the last bad shooting in Minneapolis uh, was an African officer shot a white Australian woman. Mm. So you know we have a we have a aggressive culture, a, a, a violent culture, a gun culture. The cities have a homicide culture, and people die when the police uh, act. But far more people die when the police don't act. That gets well, no attention. What about President Trump's response to all of this, his calls to dominate the streets, uh, using police to clear very often peaceful protests? What effect is that having um, on relations between the police and the community? It's an extraordinarily, uh, it's just, there's no words to describe how how inappropriate his conduct has been uh, repeatedly, but this is a new low, and it's just, and, and it's really triggering. Unfortunately, I think we're going to have a constitutional crisis over something that's really minor in the scheme of things, which is to say that he wants to send an army in against uh, looters. I was in Philly last weekend. Many of the looters are just kids. We don't need the army to come in on that. This is an indictment of the political system. But, um, you know, I, when I talk to the cops, who, but sadly, uh, at this point, because everything's so polarized, are big Trump people, um, you know, they have to admit that there's no, the worst thing you can, position you can be in as a police officer is to have a loud mouth, no nothing, provocative, um, no skin in the game uh, commander, uh, you know, uh, egging people on. Um, so, but fortunately, most recently, the, the military establishment in the country uh, is really rising to the occasion and, uh, you know, is refusing to be dragged into, um, you know, a, a crisis over, over something that's, that should have been solved uh, politically and, and can be solved in a much, much less dramatic fashion. Do you think, just finally, Eugene O'Donnell, anything is going to change as a result of this, as a result of these demonstrations, the public outcry? Well, it's a worrying time. I'm not going to be, uh, not going to deny it's a worrying time because I believe that the conversation is getting narrower, and the, the and it's a much much larger conversation is devolving onto the shoulders of the police, and the police are going to just not have the police are going to have a much. They, they already do, and we'll go back to your question. The, the, the police, you know, if you go to urban America, it's very hard to get arrested in urban America at the, at the, at the moment. So the use of forces, uh, use of force, their footprint uh, in poor neighborhoods is virtually non-existent. So policing has been reformed to the extent that there's a whole lot less of it. But the demands, it's impossible to keep up with the demands. So that no police force will, uh, certainly in our country, uh, will be able to be in urban America and and have this set of demands again a profession where you can't even get people into the job. The, the, who would want to be a police officer in urban America? Former New York police officer and now lecturer in police studies in Chicago, Eugene O'Donnell, speaking to us a little earlier. We're going to Cork next, where, as Porrick was telling us in the paper review earlier, there are reports of big house parties in houses near the university over the weekend, described by local residents as Magaluf or J1-style house parties. 
Residents described scenes of mayhem on Saturday as long queues formed outside off-licences. Large crowds roamed the streets and public greens drinking alcohol before several house parties started in rented properties later. Catherine Clancy is chair of the Magazine Road Residents Association. She's also a former Lord Mayor of Cork. Catherine Clancy, good morning. Good morning, Gavin. What happened? Well, I suppose, Gavin, um, first of all, what we witnessed in our area in the last uh, three or four days is a major civil disobedience at a large scale. What we have is um, hundreds of students who have moved into the area and rent into rented properties in the last four or five days. And um, what we have is uh, house parties, uh, drinking in the streets, and, um, as I say, just uh, very, very frightening to uh, the residents that are lived here. We live very close, Gavin, to the Cork University. Uh, University um, we live close to the Bonds Secure Hospital, but we also live very close to the um, uh, UCC. And over the years, we've lived very um, much in our community with students always being part of our community. But um, the universities are closed at the moment, and, um, you know, things have been kind of quiet. But in the last three three or four days, we've had hundreds of students moved in. And what we're um, residents, we're just usually, usually frightened. What we've seen is, I suppose, landlords, students, young people and their parents giving two fingers, two fingers to the law of the land, two fingers to the um, HSE guidelines on COVID-19, two fingers to the uh, frontline workers, two fingers to this community and two fingers to the communities that they're going to be going back into when they do go home. And what have they been doing? What have you seen? Well, I suppose they're drinking in the street. That's one thing. But the, what has really um, frightened us and concerned us, particularly, I suppose, listening to uh, Professor Sam McConkie there this morning, is the house parties. We've had house parties on a large scale. We had three houses here on Thursday night that were emptied by the community guards. And we have fantastic community guards. But for the community guards, it's just beyond their capabilities at the moment to deal with what we're dealing with. Um, we've had three houses on, that's just one street now, on Thursday night that were emptied with about 50 uh, young people coming out of each house. Um, they were not social, they were par- drinking, partying, and it went on for a number of hours. And then the day after, as residents, we called those houses saying maybe they're sober now, we'll talk to them, and no good. Uh, actually, physically, on Friday night, we as residents had to stop those parties uh, starting again by just standing outside the properties and not when allowing s- them going. Catherine, when you say that people have moved into properties in the last few yeah. days, so, so they weren't yeah. living there already, no? No, no, no. And I mean, what they have done, like, first of all, as we, we held um, a peaceful uh, uh, line uh, going along, walking along the footpath yesterday of the residents in the area, just um, raising our concerns about what's happening in the area. Like, what we have is these people, young people, who have moved in, who have no reason to be here. We're asking, why are they here? They, first of all, have broke the 5K um, kilometre travel. They are not here for essential services. They're here for no other reason, only to party. And look, what we have to say as well, Gavin, is like, their parents need to think about what they've done. I understand it's been a difficult number of months for everybody, and I suppose, you know, everybody needs to get out from each other's hair, and, you know, the, the, the young people needed to get out of home. But they can't do it. We so as residents So, Catherine, here just, just to be clear, you don't yeah. think that they're, they're, they're just there for the weekend? You think they're going to be there for no, the summer, no, yeah? No, 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 they've moved in. We've talked to the landlord, and I got one landlord say to me, look, um, Catherine, they're just getting out of their parents' hair. 
They were supposed to go to Canada. They're not going to Canada. They were supposed to go on the J1s. They're not able to go on the J1s. They're supposed to go on that summer holiday. Like, we have them from leaving certain age upwards. The houses are full. And, like, it's isn't that the landlord... Like, the landlords need to examine their conscience as well, like, you know? If we have an upsurge in the virus in the next couple of weeks, all these people need to think about what they're doing, you know, and what they have done in allowing these houses to be filled. Like, a lot of these houses, Gavin, are in... The best of times, they're not great accommodation. You know, there's one house up for me. It has uh, five people inside it, and one bathroom. You know, um, some and and landlords are still at this day and age offering shared bedrooms. You know, but look, the big thing is the house parties and our concerns around the spread of the virus. Catherine, thanks for talking to us. Catherine Clancy, chair of the Magazine Road Residents Association in Cork. Catherine's also former Lord Mayor of Cork. If you're buying your edition of British Vogue today, there's a big change to the front cover. Instead of the usual model or celebrity gracing the front cover, there's a midwife and a supermarket worker and a train driver. They represent the new front line, three women who have put their lives on the line during the COVID-19 pandemic. The midwife in question is Rachel Miller from near Cookstown in County Tyrone and who works as a midwife in the Homerton Hospital in East London. And she's on the line now. Rachel, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm very well. It's a gorgeous photograph of you. Are you happy with it? Yeah, I'm more than happy with it. I don't think I would have minded what went up there, but it's just no, it's such a I know. It's, 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 it's really lovely. How did it all come about? So I was just doing a normal shift on labour ward, caring for um, a labouring woman and they came out of the room to get something and Jamie, the photographer, was there um, and he just took photos of everyone on shift that day. So all we knew was that Vogue was doing some sort of feature on key workers during the pandemic, but we had no idea that there was potential for it to end up on the cover. So I heard a couple of weeks after that that they'd chosen my portrait to go on the cover. And what did you think? Uh, I didn't believe them at the start. It's not something you ever imagined would happen to you. So it was a bit surreal. It still is. Yeah, absolutely. And and no time for hair and makeup. All done very naturally and very much on the front line of your workplace. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Why does this matter to you, Rachel? Why does it matter for everyone that yourself and the, the supermarket worker and the, the London Underground train driver are on the front of Vogue this week? There definitely has been a shift in who Vogue kind of portray as role models um, and the fact that they've put three ordinary people on the cover instead of a model or a celebrity for this issue. Um, I hope that it's a reminder to people who see it that everyday jobs can make a difference. You don't have to have a huge huge following on social media or anything like that to make a difference. Will you talk to us a little bit about your work and how it has changed during the pandemic? Yeah, so I'm a community midwife and um, that means I do antenatal clinics uh, face-to-face with women, you know, the whole way through their pregnancy and then postnatal home visits after they've left labour ward with their newborns. And a lot of the appointments have changed to be over the telephone instead of face-to-face, which I think is really hard for the women and their families to get used to because there's just not that same um, level of support. We're trying our best to make them feel supported and put in things in place so that nothing is missed but um, I think there's a lot of anxiety around it so there's a lot of reassurance needs to happen for ourselves and for them because I think if we come across as very anxious um, it, it kind of radiates onto them. Did any of your mothers have it? 
Um, we have had a few, quite a few women, yeah. It's all quietened down recently, but at the height of the pandemic, we had quite a few people on labour ward and in the community, uh, but we still had to go and see them because there's certain things that need to happen throughout the pregnancy or in the first few days of a newborn's life that we have to offer. So regardless of whether they were suspected or a positive result of COVID, we still had to go in. But you were okay, you didn't get sick? No, I haven't yet. (laughs) That's good. Yeah, I mean, it's a very worrying time for you and your family uh, and all involved on the front line. And I just thought, you know, in in recent months, your colleagues in Northern Ireland had to go on strike uh, many days in the rain to to protest, to, to look for a few more pounds to their salaries. What are you expecting Uh, after this, Rachel, do you expect your role and the role of others on the front line to be valued properly when it's over? I hope so. I think in maternity, we've been very fortunate in that we get a lot of love and recognition purely for the nature of our job. You know, we're involved in a really momentous time in people's lives. So they often remember that and um, there is a lot of thanks in it. But it's really nice to see roles in the NHS that maybe previously weren't as um, recognised before. Not recognised, but, you know, not as much appreciation shown for their department uh, to get that recognition this time round. And um, I know, like, the collapse is going to end and or already has and the free meals, that's not going to continue forever. But I just hope the kindness that's been shown and the patience with the NHS whilst we, like, you know, get used to this pandemic and make so many changes. Um, I just hope that continues after all of this ends. Absolutely. And just finally, will there be a big run on British Vogue in Cookstown in Coke in, in Tyrone today? <laughs> I'd imagine so, yeah. I'm imagining my mum will probably be at Tesco tomorrow buying all the copies she can find. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Rachel, it's lovely talking to you and thank you very much indeed for no joining problem. us on the programme this morning. Thanks That's so Rachel much. Miller, uh, midwife and Vogue uh, front cover star. She's on the, the front cover of British Vogue, which is, goes on sale from tomorrow. Police have a new suspect in their investigation into the disappearance 13 years ago in Portugal of British child Madeleine McCann. The suspect, who hasn't been named, is a German national, a convicted sex offender known to have been in the Algarve region at the time and currently serving a prison sentence. Madeleine McCann disappeared from her parents' Algarve apartment in May 2007, shortly before her fourth birthday. Sky News correspondent Enda Brady has more on this for us. Um, Enda, what can you tell us? morning brian well this man hasn't been named but we know he's 43 he is a german national he is a convicted paedophile he's currently serving a prison sentence in germany but portuguese police and british police are very interested in him in relation to the disappearance of madeleine mccann way back in may 2007 now apparently his name was given to portuguese police on the 10th anniversary uh, which was three years ago so what we know about this guy is that he had been living uh, in a ramshackle old farm building on a, a very remote hillside above the beach at Praia de Luz, uh, which he left that property about a year before Madeline's disappearance, but he seems to have stayed in the area. He had a Volkswagen camper van. Uh, he also had a, a battered old Jaguar. And police, while they haven't released his name, um, they are looking for information about those two vehicles. They've released pictures of the vehicles. They say that he was definitely in Praia de Luz on the night of Madeline's disappearance. 
appearance. He took a call on his Portuguese mobile. They've released the, the mobile number, and they've also released the number that called his mobile. And that call lasted for precisely half an hour, and it was in the run-up to the hour that Madeline vanished. So police are very, very keen to gather more intelligence about this mm. man, more information about his movements on the night. And I think what makes him suspicious is that the very next morning, he re-registered one of those vehicles in the name of someone else uh, and basically vanished. So German police are looking for more information, Portuguese detectives, and indeed detectives here in London as well. And I suppose it's a measure of the scale of this investigation that something like 600 people have been uh, uh, come to the attention or been regarded as of some significance and uh, the the emergence of this individual followed an appeal in, in, in just in 2017 on the 10th anniversary of the disappearance. Yes, his name was given to detectives on the 10th anniversary and Portuguese police, we understand, have been speaking to people in the area. Um, this guy apparently did stand out. Uh, his driving was appalling. He always seemed to have an angry... De- demeanour about him and he was known in the area um, what police know is that he was definitely in Pride Luge on the night of Madeline's disappearance, this phone call for whatever reason has flagged up as suspicious, half an hour phone call in the run up to Madeline's disappearance uh, and then the re-registering of the vehicle the very next morning so um, detectives desperate for more information mm. um, they haven't released his name as we understand that he is currently serving a prison sentence mm. in Germany. And the appeal has been welcomed by, by the McCanns, by Madeleine's parents. They say that they, they've never given a hop, up hope of finding her alive, but of course there have been many false leads in the past. Yeah, there have been so many Madeleine stories over the years. I mean, it's front page news today, and it always will be, and the, the McCanns say that they will never give up hope until someone tells them and proves that their daughter is no longer living. They will always believe that she is out there and they will keep searching for her. Mm. Just separately, Enda, because I gather you were in Downing Street in London last evening uh, and, of course, across the UK there have been protests associated with the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, for the most part uh, peaceable uh, demonstrations, but there were some uh, rather ugly scenes in Downing Street last evening. What did you see? Yeah, it turned very unpleasant. Uh, just about 8 o'clock last night, um, I arrived on Whitehall, which is the road that runs from Parliament Square all the way down to Trafalgar Square. And then you have the Foreign Office, which is one road off to the left, and Downing Street is the next road off. Mm-hmm. So there was about 300 protesters. I've been in Lewisham in South London at a, a protest outside a police station there. It was completely peaceful, very respectful. People made their point and they left. Uh, I then went up to Westminster. I received a tip-off that there was some trouble there. And sure enough, basically people throwing bottles at the police. At one mm-hmm. stage, the, the barricades outside Downing Street, which politicians and press use, to, it's a walkway that before you enter Downing Street, people rip, ripping those barricades apart to, to use them as weapons. Um, at one stage, I saw a police truck come under bottles being thrown out under fire um, and police forming a, a ring of steel around the police truck to enable their colleagues mm. to reverse and get away. It, it was deeply unpleasant. And then an Australian camera crew from Channel 9, uh, Ben Avery is their Europe correspondent. He was about to go live and he had to run for his life, basically. They had to flee mm. to safety um, because the mob turned on the media. And it got really unpleasant. It really, really did. That went on for several hours. And I think okay. the one point to make, Brian, I think the police had been so light-handed in their policing of the protests all day, uh, they ended up being outnumbered last night at points.
All right. And we leave it there. End of Brady from Sky News. Thanks very much indeed for that. Uh, just uh, 25 past seven. Education Minister Joe McHugh has said his department is looking at plans to open summer schools for children with learning disabilities. It follows calls from parents around the country who say their children are particularly vulnerable and suffering greatly without a routine. Our reporter Theresa Mannion has been speaking to families in Galway who were seeking to have their July education programme reinstated at Rosedale School in Renmore. Zoe Hines is eight and Manus McNamara is seven. Both attend Rosedale School in Galway City. Now that routine is gone and these kids aren't coping. Neither are their parents. Lorraine Tuck is struggling to keep going. Manus has an intellectual disability along with autism and other comorbidity. He's feeding issues, he's doubly incontinent, he doesn't sleep at night. Parents are at home suffering. I am suffering. I have three other children and they're 11, they're 12 and I'm not able to homeschool them because I spent all day and all night awake with my kid and that's the harsh reality. We need the school to open. Parents are going out of their mind. I've listened to a mum crying last night because her child put his head through a window because he is so out of his routine and he's bigger and stronger than my child. I can't even imagine what she's going through. Zoe's mother is also at breaking point. Angelina Hines says the round-the-clock care gives her little time to spend with her two young sons. She says her daughter has regressed a lot since the school closed. She has started eating her arms, so she's now chewing her left arm. So when she gets frustrated, she's now grabbing onto her left arm with her teeth and causing bruises in her left arm. She's eating her clothes. So it's all trying to regulate herself, not understanding. Um, school is just so important to Zoe. You know, it's more than education. It's about the social aspect of it. This is, school is her play date. Zoe doesn't get invited on play dates. Zoe doesn't get to birthday parties and understand what they're about. So it's all about school. Rosedale School has carried out a risk assessment based on current public health guidelines. Breda O'Connell is the principal and she sees no reason why the July education programme cannot be reinstated. We have looked at a way forward even in terms of staggering children attending the school. We have looked at um, how many could come in a day. Um, we've looked at all our sanitisation, um, the healthcare temperature checks. So we feel that we will be ready to roll with um, a reopening of the school. Um, I suppose just to bail out some of the families in terms of the crisis that they're in. I mean, families are really struggling. But we need that green light and a clear message from the, from the government and the minister to tell us what can happen going forward, particularly around the July provision. We do have this July education programme. And, you know, Minister McHugh is talking about it'll be in a different format this year. But that's online. Think of it, my daughter is like an eight-month-old. She doesn't understand online. She doesn't understand mobile phones. She doesn't understand laptops. Her care and her teaching has always been one-to-one. So what I have proposed is that children like Zoe with severe and profound intellectual disabilities return to school, to a school-based July programme. You know, and our school are so well-versed in infection control. 
you know, they know, and a lot of our children are non-ambulant as well. So social distancing is actually easier for our children. So I, I propose that they go back to school. They are the forgotten children. They have been completely forgotten about in any roadmap to reopening this country. Angelina Hines ending that report from Theresa Mannion in Galway. The temperatures may be about to drop today, but there is little sign of heavy rains that will reduce the likelihood of a hosepipe ban being introduced, as we were told on this programme yesterday by Irish Water. Dr Tom Collins, the chairperson of Anfora Mishka, the Water Forum, has said it has consistently drawn attention to the lack of resilience in our water services, particularly in Dublin. Professor Fiona Regan is director of the DCU Water Institute and has been keeping a blog on water and water resilience since COVID restrictions started. Professor Regan, good morning. Good morning. You've been tracking water levels uh, since about mid-March. What have you found? Yeah, well, I suppose we knew that uh, we weren't getting the levels of rainfall that would be typical for the time of year. So I just started to look at the data that Metairn were showing and Quite quickly, it was clear that the levels were almost 10 times lower than previous five years. So kind of for, you know, a 30 day period between mid-March, mid-April, you know, we were meeting kind of 5.5 mils of uh, rainfall where it would have been uh, 10 times that in the previous five years. So do you think that water should have been restricted earlier? Yes, uh, I do. I, I think definitely we should have been hearing about uh, these kind of conservation messages clearer uh, two months ago. Um, you know, uh, we were getting quite good forecasts. We were knowing that uh, the weather was going to be dry. And certainly uh, with the health issues that we had been facing, uh, we should certainly have been hearing this earlier. Yes. Yeah. But given how much rain we had earlier in the winter, particularly in February, surely there should have been enough supply to keep us going? Yeah, well, I suppose throughout different parts of the country, the supply varies. And in Dublin, uh, I suppose we have kind of about 1% uh, supply above above what we require, typically. Now, it's different during this time because businesses are closed and so on. But we're washing our hands a lot more, as we know. Um, so in Dublin, it's quite uh, quite close to the actual level that we need to supply. In other parts of the country, it could be between 10 and 15%. So it varies very much on where you live. So we can never really take it for granted in the east of the country. In response, Irish Water say that Dublin needs a new source of water as the existing sources will not be able to meet long-term requirements. And they say they've been consistently clear that the rate of leakage remains unacceptably high and it's a complex issue to solve. Leakage estimated to be at around 40% at the moment. Um, So is it a case of supply being too low or too much still being lost through leaks? Yes, well, it's really interesting. Uh, the water advisory body had a report in March that indicates 45% loss through leakage. Uh, this is much too high. And Anfermishka, who you referred to earlier, had uh, an independent uh, report done on the Shannon project, um, which is proposed to alleviate the issue of the East uh, water problem. And they have compared leakage repairs in Dublin, in, in Ireland versus three other countries uh, in, in Portugal, in Malta um, and in Scotland, I think. And the rate of leakage repair in those countries far 
exceeds the rate at which it is proposed to happen in Ireland. And so I think we need to look at that because there are technologies that can help us repair those leaks. Now, it's non-trivial, as you say, it's really a huge challenge and particularly, you know, in a city like Dublin. But we're at a time now where, you know, we're looking at changing how, how we use transport and we're going to be digging up, perhaps preparing for cycle lanes. Maybe there's an opportunity to look at ways that we can actually reduce leaks. Uh, you know, I think it's a combination of things, you know, uh, reservoir maintenance, reservoir levels, leakage repair has to be a main part of that. We had one listener who emailed us yesterday when he heard the item uh, about an imminent hosepipe ban, worried about um, sources of water, uh, for example, pointing to water being used in his area in County Carlow uh, from rivers for extensive irrigation for businesses. Yeah, well, this is obviously, we're going to see this happening. Um, You know, rivers are a really important supply source for drinking water. So if it's a drinking water supply source that is being used for irrigation, that is a challenge. Um, You know, I think overall, we need a policy that looks at water management and valuing water and a resilience policy. And I think you mentioned that Tom Collins was uh, referring to that also. I mean, it really needs to be a government-led approach to water management and valuing water. Um, for sure, people are going to be using rivers right now because there's such a drought. Uh, this is this year, but this is not going away. Two years ago, we had a drought. So we need now a call for a management okay. plan for water. Fiona Regan, Professor Fiona Regan, Director of the DCU Water Institute. Thank you very much for speaking to us. Well, we're going to Sweden next, where the country's chief epidemiologist has admitted that they should have done more to combat COVID-19. The country of over 10 million people did not impose a general lockdown in the way other countries did, and it now has one of the highest death rates from the virus in the world, at just over 4,500 deaths. Anders Tegnell said that if they were to do it again, the new approach would be something between what they did do and what the rest of the world has done. His approach, which was followed by government, has been criticised by fellow scientists, Cecilia Soderberg-Naukler is Professor of Microbial Pathogenesis at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden and was one of over 2,000 academics who signed an open letter urging the government to implement stronger measures. And she joins us now. You're very welcome indeed to Morning Ireland. What do you think of what Mr Tegnell has now said about the approach? I think it's very good that he has uh, come to his senses and reflected over what we have done in Sweden and and, uh, um, seen what uh, the results were from that strategy as compared to other countries who have done a more stricter lockdown. I think, though, that uh, Mr. Tegnell is not uh, completely agreeing with that. He's retracted from his view that we have done a wrong thing, that uh, uh, that many uh, many things that were different are actually not on the positive side that he has has, uh, discussed after his statement on that they should have done other things. Yes, he he did broadly then uh, back up his original strategy. I heard him being interviewed on the BBC World Service last night and he said that they could have saved more older people's lives in care homes. Do you agree? Absolutely, because I think that even though it's an excellent strategy to protect the old people, we need to have a plan to be able to do so. And there was no plan. Uh, There was not enough safety equipment. There was not recommendations on how people should go to work. There were no testing, either of personnel or or the the people that live in the elderly elderly homes. So there were many things that were not uh, sort of... uh, 
prepared for a plan that we should protect people because if you don't have a plan for how to not get the, the virus into these elderly homes and not protect the ones that are, that are there through safety equipment, there is actually no way to do that. We saw the situation in many other European countries and indeed in the United States and beyond uh, about hospitals' capacity to cope. And with 40,000 plus cases in Sweden, were your hospitals able to cope? Well, it depends on how you view that situation because um, we have now not admitted most of the elderly people that have died. They have not been admitted to the hospitals. If they were, we would have had probably almost twice as many um, uh, hospital bed needs as we actually ended up having. However, the strategy that we have used in Sweden has, uh, um, as many has, uh, has reflected over, done better than we were uh, afraid that it would do. So that means that the social distancing level has actually helped uh, better than, than uh, we feared that um, it would do which means that we have flattened the curve in a way and kept people on distance and many have been working at home. So even though this halfway um, measurements were done, I think that we uh, actually did better than, than we, uh, we foreseed. Okay. And what in your mind still needs to happen in order to reduce this death rate? Well, first of all, we need to test, test, test. We need to contact trace, which the, the, uh, with the authority have not done uh, since uh, the second week in March because they kind of lost control already then. And uh, we also need to isolate people more properly because they have been on, on the advice of staying at home and self-isolate for two days after you recover and you don't know if you're sick or not from, uh, from the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So uh, that's the most important thing. And we do think that masks should be implemented on the indoor activities, for example, where crowded buses and, and uh, shopping areas where, which are now filling up with more and more people. So yesterday we had over 2,000 cases confirmed and it's been below 1,000, between 300 to 700 the past few weeks. So we're actually quite concerned that people are now not respecting social distancing to the same level as it, as it was for a month ago. So we will see where these numbers will take us, but uh, we think that there should be stricter measurements again and um, uh, the 50, uh, 50 people meeting um, number should probably be, uh, be reduced to, to something like 10 instead, and that is a very important signal to the people that it's the, the, the fear for this virus is far from over and we are very concerned on what's going to happen, even though okay. they are coming up for holiday time now and people are spending more time outside, but we are seeing that people are also moving into uh, indoor crowded spaces. Restaurants are filling up and, and yeah. uh, shopping centres and so on. Okay. So, but the most important thing will be testing yeah. and contrast tracing and also okay. isolating people properly. Well, we will keep in touch with you and thank you very much for joining us on the programme this morning. Professor Cecilia Soderberg, now Claire, joining us from Sweden. The Immigrant Council of Ireland is today reopening, reporting a big increase in the number of people using its helpline last year. The organisation says it answered some 5,000 calls during 2019. That's an increase of 1,500 on the previous year. Brian Killoran is the council's CEO and he's on the line now and can tell us more. Very good morning, Brian Killoran. Thanks for talking to us this morning. So what's driving this big increase in calls uh, during, during last year? Who's calling you and why? 
Well, we, as you say, um, experienced a, a significant increase in our calls last year, which has been maintained this year, albeit we are working in different circumstances um, because of the pandemic. Um, I suppose what, what drives the, the people coming to our service is access to justice, essentially. People looking for information about how to navigate our immigration system, how to get from positions of being students into positions of being workers, how to get to a more permanent and secure immigration status. But also family plays a huge part in it. It's about family reunification, how people can get spouses into the state, what their rights are when they get here. We have a, a, a slightly opaque immigration system in Ireland, a lot of which is based on discretion. So the policies are there, but it very much varies based on on the person making the application and there's not a lot of legal rights and entitlements so in those circumstances it's very hard for people to know what will happen when they make an immigration application and we try to help them to navigate that process through our helpline and through our legal services and are you finding yourself taking calls both from people who are here already and involved in the uh, process of uh, 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 with the department uh, as well as people from living abroad who want to move here the vast majority are people who are here in Ireland. So they've, they've made Ireland their home and they're looking to get, as I say, to a more secure status or trying to find out what the implications are of their immigration status on other things. Like, what does it mean for my education? What does it mean for my social welfare if I need it? What does it mean for my employment? Um, so it is predominantly people that are here, but it is also people that are, that are looking to come here as well. We've taken calls from many countries around the world, sometimes from Irish citizens as well, who are returning to Ireland and bringing spouses and partners with them wondering what will happen to those spouses and partners when they get here. You've also been involved in, in recent times in an initiative to counter racism, which obviously is very much in people's minds at the moment with, with what's been happening in the United States. And in, in your particular initiative has, has focused on, on public transport and the public transport system as, a, as an area where, where people just uh, integrate a lot and provides an opportunity to, uh, to, to confront racist attitudes. Absolutely. Well, I suppose the day-to-day -day work of our anti-racism work is supporting victims of racism. So we do provide a support service for people who can contact the organisation and get support if they've experienced something, try to find out how they might remedy the situation they're in. And sometimes it's just emotional support, having somebody to talk to, having gone through something quite difficult. But every year then as well, we work with the public transport providers across all of Ireland to do an annual campaign. And public transport's a great place to do that because it's a real source, a real point of integration for all of us. Everybody uses public transport every every day um, or to a large extent at least or in normal circumstances anyway um, and it is a place where actually the staff are quite diverse and the users of public transport are quite diverse. So it sends out a message first of all that, that public transport does not tolerate incidents of racism but it also gives us as an organisation the opportunity to say and if you do experience something come and get some support because the only way we'll resolve these things is by working in unison together and giving a space for people to actually talk about what's happened to them and actually give providers like public transport providers the opportunity to push back and say, you know what, as a public space, mm -hmm. we don't tolerate this either. And just one last question about current circumstances. Many, uh, I think people will, will, will perhaps expect that many of those in the migrant community are working very often in frontline uh, um, occupations um, and, and as a result, perhaps are at greater risk uh, during this pandemic. Is that something that's been coming through as well? 
Well, the vast majority of our calls on our helpline at the moment are, are, are COVID-19 related and they come from people from a migrant background who are working largely in essential jobs in the healthcare system and in very mm. important places within, within, within Irish society. And the impact on them is significant because largely a lot of the time their immigration status is quite fragile and they're wondering what the impact of that will be. So for us, that does highlight, first of all, the significant impact of migrants to Irish society working in very key sectors, but also our need to support them, to reform our immigration system, to make sure that we are supporting them adequately, to give them security. Ireland is mm -hmm. their home and they need to stay here. But also in the broader scheme of things, we have to address integration, we have to address anti-racism, we have to have a national plan to make sure that people from a migrant background in Ireland are, are provided with the appropriate supports, that if they experience things like racism, we're prepared for that. We're not right. just reacting to it, we're planning ahead for it. Brian, thank you very much indeed for talking to us this morning. That was uh, uh, Brian Caloran from the Emigrant Council of Ireland. Now we're going to turn finally this morning to Minding Creative Minds, a new support programme for the Irish music sector. The programme will go live for musicians, songwriters and managers with plans for it to be made available to others working in the industry at a later date. Joining us now to tell us more is Eleanor McAvoy, who's of course a singer and a songwriter, but also the chair of the Irish Music Rights Organisation. Eleanor, tell us about this initiative. What, what does it involve and why is it starting now? How you doing, Rachel? Well, Minding Creative Minds, it's a free well-being and support programme and it's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week for musicians, songwriters, managers, um, production crew, so sound engineers, lighting engineers. And uh, it was supposed to be going, we were supposed to be getting it together by the end of the year, but we actually tried to bring it forward with the current COVID crisis because I think this is a really, really difficult time for a lot of creative people and uh, we wanted something for them. So, yeah, it's a st it's kind of a a small step in the right direction. It has been a difficult time. I mean, it's probably fair to say that musicians were almost the first to lose out and they'll probably be the last to get their livelihoods back. Absolutely. I mean, I did my last, I came off stage in Melbourne on the 12th of, in Australia on the 12th of March and I, I don't know when I'm going to get back on stage again. We were the first people to stop having to stop working and it looks like concerts are going to be the very, very last thing to get back together. Um, I mean, to be honest with you, the music industry is difficult at the best of times, you know. Um, it's, it's, it's an odd way to make your living. And I think creative people have a particular sense, a particular set of stresses, if you like. Um, hugely, the financial thing is always a huge thing for creative people. You know, you don't have that money coming into your bank account on the same day every month. You don't know how much is going to come in every month. Uh, and that brings about a very particular set of stresses. Um, creative people, by their nature, they tend to be internally motivated. But, you know, we live in a world that gives external rewards. So um, th there's an element to which we don't kind of fit in the world. <laughs> uh, so the idea of this is it's not just going to give um, extensive counselling and even uh, th there'll be a sort of a um, it will also give information on legal issues. It'll give financial um, advice. Uh, so in other words, you could get on and say you need financial advice about X, Y, Z. And they'll say, OK, an accountant's going to call you back and you could have 30 minutes free with an accountant. Um, it'll give career guidance, life couch, coaching and um, a whole range of really practical support as well as psychological report. And how then do people contact this service? 
Well, there's three different phone numbers. There's a phone number for uh, Ireland, which is 1-800-814-244. There's one from Northern Ireland, 0800-0903-677. And there's also one uh, internationally if you're on tour. You know, as, as a musician that tours a lot abroad, I really think that's so important that you can reach out, you know, 24 hours a day to somebody back home who will understand the particular situation you're in. Um, so that, yeah, that's, that's a separate number as well. All of this information is on the website, themindandcreativeminds.ie website. And um, will all of that be available from today? It's available from today. We're announcing the full details tomorrow, but it is actually available from today. Um, and it's a, it really is. I mean, I've no doubt, it's not an exaggeration to say that this initiative will say, save lives. I've absolutely no doubt uh, about that that at all. Um, you know, this has been an extraordinary time in our lives and uh, you know 91% of respondents from the first fortnight uh, st- survey that they brought out said that uh, 91% of respondents said that they experienced anxiety, depression and mental ill health and 95% said that there was a need for a dedicated mental well-being support programme. Um, you know, it really is hugely needed Um and I think that the practical advice as well as uh, other, you know, kind of psychological um, types of advice will be hugely welcomed. Um, I should say that, you know, it's put together by Dave Reed and he's an amazing guy. He does the Choice Music Prize every year, but he also has a, um, an MA in, you know, psychotherapy. Um, but it's it's being funded by First Fortnight, which is, you know, his organisation, but also by IMRA, by IRMA, by a whole lot of in- music industry partners. Well, listen, as you say, it sounds as though it's very much needed. Eleanor McAvoy, thanks indeed for joining us this morning. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.